willkommen in Berlin. Welcome to Berlin. I'm Marion Jones. This is City Breaks Berlin, episode 9, In Search of East Berlin. I've been doing a little suite of episodes about all the layers of history to be found in Berlin today. We've looked at the war, the Holocaust, and last time at the Berlin Wall. And today, to round off the theme, I'd like to take a look behind the wall, if you're looking from the Western perspective anyway, at the country that used to be called East Germany, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, or in German, the DDR, Deutsche Demokratische Republik. The country which existed for the duration of the wall, so for 28 years, from 1961 until 1989. Perhaps for younger generations, it's already history. For people my age, though, they spent their childhood growing up in East Germany, and more than a decade of their adult life too. I have a friend from Turingen who's an English teacher. Nothing unusual in that, you'd think, except that when she was at school in East Germany, learning English was not a possibility. She'd always wanted to do it, and when the wall came down, she set about making up for lost time. Went to university, studied English, lived abroad, and then started teaching that language which had been forbidden, because Russian was what you had to learn in those days, to the children of the next generation. And one thing which struck me when I went to Turingen, so that was one of the five East German provinces, to visit, was that there was, is definitely, a certain sort of nostalgia for the country which doesn't exist anymore, for some of the old ways, usually from people who absolutely agree that, yes, of course, they're better off now. But still, it's not a completely black and white issue, and there are things that they miss, and even things they don't miss which still have a certain poignancy about them. So, I thought I might start with a very brief recap of last time's episode, because if there are people listening who didn't hear it, they're going to be mighty confused, I think. So, here is Rory McLean from his book Berlin Imagine a City, summarising the situation in the summer of 1961 when the wall went up. Quote, in communist propaganda, Berlin West became West Berlin. Berlin East became Berlin, Hauptstadt der DDR capital of democratic Germany. Underground trains crawled through sealed ghost stations. Armed Fopos, that's Volkspolizei, so police of the people, literally, blocked the few crossing points. Billboard-sized blinds were erected to prevent relatives from waving to each other. Dozens of escapees were killed trying to breach the barrier. 18-year-old Peter Fechter bled to death at the base of the barricade after being gunned down by East German border guards. A tailor named Günther Litvin was shot as he swam across the Spree. The elderly spinster Ida Siegmann died when she jumped from her third-floor window. A book which I am currently reading and very much enjoying is called Red Love by Maxim Leo, the story of several generations of his family who got caught in the whole East-West Germany debacle. And here he is describing his father Wolf's experiences in the early 1950s so when Berlin was beginning to peel apart one side from the other, but ten years before the wall went up. Quote, After school, Wolf and his mates go to West Berlin, often smuggling themselves into the border cinemas to watch cowboy films and steal chocolate and sweets. The West is gaudy and exciting. It smells of coffee and chewing gum. The American soldiers, who sometimes give them little presents, are as cool as the cowboys in the films. No comparison with the East German police, who guard the border crossings in their ill-fitting uniforms. Every day they go back and forth, from one world into the other. 
they see the neon signs and the red banners, gleaming Dable coupes and Russian military vehicles, women in sheer stockings and apron dresses. They listen to rock and roll and workers' songs. Wolf says every child knew at the time which the superior system was. And so then from 1961 the war was up, West Germans could apply to visit the East, send a form in to the office, wait for a reply a few days later, perhaps a white card which says no, your application's been rejected, or maybe a green one, yes, you are permitted entry. Either way, no reason was ever given. And so gradually, for most people, even most Germans, the DDR slowly disappeared, receded into the background, became somewhere that people didn't know all that much about. East Germany had five provinces, as against eleven in West Germany. It was the northeastern chunk of the country. And slap bang in the middle of it, Berlin, now a divided city. So East Berlin, the capital of the DDR, and West Berlin, a little island surrounded by East Berlin on one side and East Germany on every other side. And life went on separately then for the next 28 years. Today, if you go to the bit of the Spree where Unter den Linden finishes and becomes Karl Liebknechtstrasse, so right on the edge of the museum island, you will see, bang on the riverbank, a big blue and white sign labelled DDR Museum. And that's perhaps the best place to go if you want to get a sense of this long-lost country. Its own guidebook runs to 22 little chapters, which describe, quote, everyday life in a long-gone state. Strange how they use the words long gone, because it is only 30 years since the wall came down. But I think it was so different that it seems much longer ago than that, perhaps, if you think back to East Germany and East Berlin. The museum is excellent. Lots and lots to look at, including some recreated spaces, for example, a typical East German flat, a Stasi interrogation room. You can try sitting in a Trabi, the Trabant, the car that some East Germans finally got after they'd waited long enough on a list and, of course, had state approval as being worthy of such a luxury. You can open lots of drawers full of realia. You can see photographs and slogans and explanations. So let's go through a few of the things. How about where did people live? So there's lots of information on the Plattenbau. They were the high-rise buildings that the East German government built and in which nearly everybody lived. In socialist East Germany, you weren't supposed to wish to be different from others. Everybody should be the same. It's explained in the guidebook, actually. Quote, Many flats had equal measurements, and the same held true for the furniture. This was practical, but it made all flats look basically the same. Sticking with daily life, there's lots of information on something which was absolutely an everyday part of life in the DDR, namely shortages. The planned economy didn't always plan all that well. It meant that things weren't always available. Queues were common. You had to work round it and just use whatever you could buy. Of course, it wasn't done to complain, but people did make jokes about it. A common phrase being, everything is available, just not at all times, and not everywhere, and especially not when you need it. The little section explains there might be days when you couldn't buy writing paper or envelopes. Another day there'd be no honey or no crisp bread. There was quite often a shortage of fruit and vegetables and of meat and sausages. Here's the guidebook. While Western consumers were always looking for special offers, the people in the GDR were hunting down scarce goods. Always prepared, people carried a folded shopping bag with them at all times 
just in case something is available. I think I did know that. I vaguely remember television pictures of people queuing, but I wasn't expecting the next paragraph. Prices in the GDR were not influenced by the offer-demand ratio, but were instead set by the government, which subsidised certain products. Rents, electricity, gas, water and some basic foods were so cheap that people went ahead and wasted them without a second thought. But the last paragraph on shortages reads like this. In the final years of the GDR, hardly any product was available everywhere and at all times. Sellers rationed their goods. Nappies and children's clothes were numbered off and only available to you once you'd shown your ID card to the salesperson. And then there were cars. There were cars, East German-made cars, the Trabant, for example. But you had to go on a waiting list to get one and it could take, apparently, up to 16 years to get to the top of it. Trabant was a funny little car. I read that it was made of, quote, a mix of cotton fleece and plastic, which they called a duroplast, apparently. But of course, for those who were able to get hold of them, they were an amazing symbol of a bit more freedom. They featured in popular songs. There's one with the line, A sky blue Trabant drove through the land. They might even allow you to leave the country, off to other places in Eastern Europe. Although they were notoriously unreliable, and not great for long journeys. Frequent repairs would be needed, which you had to do yourself on the whole, and there was a running joke which went, What do you call a trabby on a mountain? Reply, a miracle. Moving on to education, that was taken very seriously in East Germany. There were nurseries for all children, the idea being that mothers were expected to go out to work, and also that children in nurseries could begin their socialist education. There's a wonderful photo in the museum of A line of toddlers all sitting on potties, that apparently being the regime. When the moment came, they were all lined up and made to sit on them, and nobody was allowed to get off until everybody had finished. Every Monday morning, in every East German school, a flag would be hoisted, and the children would sing patriotic songs. They were being moulded into socialist citizens. There are displays in the museum explaining that students had to recite propaganda slogans, In fact, that went on all the way through school, and even if you got as far as university, no matter what subject you were studying, you still had to take courses in socialist ideology and pass the exams in it in order to be allowed to progress. Sport and military training were important in the schools. The guidebook describes sports classes as being, quote, an ill-concealed preparation for later military service. There were lessons called Society for Sports and Technology, which drilled pupils and taught them how to shoot. And that too remained compulsory, even for university-level students. Standards, however, in certain subjects especially, were very high. Here's the guidebook again. Quote, This educational system produced successful athletes, good soldiers, diligent engineers and qualified scientists. Critical thinking, however, was unwanted. Out of school, too, young people's lives were guided you pretty much had to join the youth association, the pioneers. It was known that if you did refuse, you would probably never be allowed to study later on. There was a lot of enjoyment to be had with the pioneers. There was sport, there were camps, there were groups with different names for all the different ages, until at 14 you formally became an adult and participated in a coming-of-age ceremony, a sort of secular equivalent of confirmation, perhaps. And for adults in the German Democratic Republic, 
what was most important, central to your life, was your work. Jobs were largely provided by the state, which meant that everybody had one. That's something that people missed after reunification, actually, that unemployment hit East Germany, and that was very much a new thing. Whereas in East Germany, it had been absolutely central to your life. Your factory or your company was more than that. It would provide a nursery for your children. There would be holiday camps so that the whole family could go away together. The workplace was the main route to medical treatment for most people. And there was a general atmosphere which would seem very strange in the West today. Listen to this. Large factories had a wall of fame, large panel on the walls, with photos of workers and collectives that had either met or surpassed the desired production quota. In addition, fast work was rewarded by way of wage bonuses, decorations or titles. Colleagues constantly competed with each other for the best results, thus making up for the lack of any competition with other factories. And it is true that East German companies found it very difficult at first to compete after the wall came down with Western Europe. Much of the museum then is dedicated to ordinary life, but there was, as I think everybody knows, a sinister aspect too, which pervaded everybody's existence. Here again, the guidebook. Everyone living in the GDR had to expect their mail to be checked, their phone and flat to be bugged, and that the government was putting together a file on him or her. When it came to the Stasi, that's the East German police, citizens were left without any rights, as it had unrestricted access to all files, including bank statements and medical records. With dirty tricks, they undermined the professional career and even the family life of any citizen who had attracted their attention. And there's information on the Stasi and how they were able to do all of this, having their own military units, having prisons and a network of safe houses. In short, how they did everything possible to support the East German regime. I think their own definition was that they were, quote, a shield and sword of the party. And there are some very scary numbers. It's thought that by 1989, when the wall came down, there were 93,000 people working for the Stasi. And, perhaps even more scarily, another 173,000 unofficial collaborators. So they were the people who seemed ordinary, were your neighbour or your colleague, but who spied on you and reported what they found to liaison officers. It even transpired after the wall came down and it was agreed that people could look at their files that, in some cases, it was a relative perhaps even your spouse or one of your children, who had been spying on you and reporting your activities to the Stasi. Very scary stuff and not skirted around in the DDR Museum. However, there is a second museum, an actual Stasi museum, built in the premises that the Stasi themselves used as their headquarters in Normalenstrasse. I'll put the link in the show notes. And if you really want to study what the Stasi got up to in detail, that would be a place to go. Again, lots of information, pictures, realia. You can visit the actual office used by the head of the Stasi, Erich Milke, who was there from 1952 right up until the wall fell in 1989. But for me, actually, what struck was just the small things, the fake wigs and moustaches that Stasi members would use in an attempt to disguise themselves. There's a handbag with a built-in microphone disguised as a flower with little plastic petals around it, presumably used by female Stasi members in conversation with 
of the people hoping to capture some incriminating evidence. There are the bugs that they used in the walls of people's houses, the telephones, examples of letters which people had written, posted with Western addresses and which were just scooped up by the Stasi and never delivered. And then, perhaps the spookiest of all, something called the smell samples. I kid you not, rows and rows and cupboards full of jars containing little pieces of cloth which were impregnated with the smell of people they suspected, people they'd interviewed, people they knew they might want to find again. Say perhaps the Stasi were going somewhere where they suspected an illegal meeting had taken place. They would take dogs with them, along with the jars containing smell samples of suspects, and see if the dogs could pick up the scents. The scale of this operation was incredible. I think there were hundreds of thousands of jars by the end, and the whole thing sounds just so unlikely that I'm going to read you a paragraph written by Anna Funda in her book, Stasiland. Another excellent read, by the way, if you really want to get behind this story in detail. And here she is describing the concept of smell samples. Quote, Mostly, smell samples were collected surreptitiously. The Stasi might break into someone's apartment and take a piece of clothing worn close to the skin, often underwear. Alternatively, a suspect would be brought in under some pretext for questioning, and the vinyl seat he or she had sat on would be wiped afterwards with a cloth. The pieces of stolen clothing, or the cloth, would then be placed in a sealed jar. The containers looked like jam bottling jars. A label read, name, time, object, and the details would be filled in, so the person's name, perhaps one hour for the time, and object, workers' underpants. Another book which will take you into East Germany and give lots of examples of how it affected the daily lives of all its citizens is called The House by the Lake, written by Thomas Harding. The author had German heritage, and he discovered that there was a house on a lake outside Berlin, Glinikersee, which members of his own family had lived in, and he researched it, found out from about 1900 all the way through to the present day, the stories of the five generations of people who lived there. And that, of course, took in the period of the East German regime. And he writes about a man called Wolfgang Kühne, who was employed as a driver for the army, but who first, before he could take up the job, had to have a Stasi interview. This was in August 1958, so almost exactly three years before the wall was built. So Wolfgang went along for his appointment with the Stasi, to find that they had a file on him in front of them. The author discovered years later when the file was accessible that it contained reports on, for example, Wolfgang being politically clean, i.e. he had no relatives who'd worked for the Nazis. It noted that he has participated in political education, but that wasn't wholly positive. Quote, he focuses on negative discussions, revealing that he has little trust in the politics of the DDR. In this matter, lots of questions remain over him. But he was employed, and he was told as well that he would have to have further meetings with his Stasi handler. And these two are described. At one of them, for example, he was asked whether he could report that any of his colleagues had committed a political misdeed. The author then describes the dilemma which I think was pretty common in these sort of situations, where Wolfgang Kühner knew he had to try and come up with something helpful. On the other hand, he didn't want to land anyone in it. So he said something like, well, some of the truck drivers might be using petrol vouchers for their own personal driving, but was quick to say that he couldn't name anybody. 
and was told that he should keep a more careful look in future and report back. The meetings continued. Eventually, Mr. Cooner told them about his boss, Herr Gardner, whom he'd visited at home and noticed that the television was tuned to a western station. Herr Cooner was thanked for this information. The next meeting was pencilled into the diary and the author finishes the report on this with the following words. Shortly afterwards, the Cooners took possession of a large television set, becoming one of the few families in the village to have such a luxury. The number of files which were discovered after the wall came down, and the detail in which they were written was absolutely mind-blowing. When eventually it was agreed that people could see their own files, they discovered descriptions of evenings out that they had more or less forgotten and certainly had never thought were significant, but there it would be, the timings, exactly where they went, who they met, just in an absolutely unsuspected level of detail. People did know they were being watched, that the state seemed to know all sorts of things about them. There were constant examples of somebody losing their job or being denied a place to study. And again, I think it's only really from the eyewitness accounts of somebody who lived through it that you can begin to believe all of this actually happened. In the book Stasiland, the author Anna Funda describes going along after the wall had come down to something called the Federal Commissioner for the Files of the State Security Service of the former GDR, the building people went to to read their files. And this is what she writes about what she saw. I see through a window into a room where several men and a woman sit each at their own small table. They look at pink and dun-coloured manila folders and take notes. What mysteries are being solved? Why they didn't get into university? Or why they couldn't find a job? Or which friend told them about the forbidden Solzhenitsyn in their bookcase? The names of third parties mentioned in the files are crossed out with fat black markers, so other people's secrets are not revealed. But you are entitled to know the real names of the Stasi officers and the informers who spied on you. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Can you imagine what that must have done to the society afterwards to read a file and discover that your neighbour or your daughter or that boss you always quite liked had been telling the Stasi all about you all along? So yes, a visit to the Stasi Museum is definitely very instructive. There's one further place which you can visit, which is today a memorial site, but which was, during the period of the DDR, a prison. It's the formidable Hohenschönhausen. So you are going to the actual building where Stasi prisoners were held. It was built originally, in fact, as a Nazi camp. It was used by the Soviets when they came to Berlin at the end of the war and eventually, in the 1950s, became the property of the Ministry of State Security, the Stasi. There you can look round the cells, see the interrogation rooms and be taken on a guided tour. When I first went in the early 2000s, the practice was that ex-prisoners would act as guides, so they would take you round and show you the place, but they would also tell you their story en route. As far as I know, that is still happening, but it must, of course, now, 30 years later, be becoming more and more difficult to find these guides with personal experience of the camp. It's a little bit like visiting one of the concentration camps, in that the atmosphere, of course, is very sombre, and every effort is made to explain what actually happened. There's a quite comprehensive leaflet that you can bring away in English, and much of it is factual, yes, but also very frank. This, for example, 
Physical violence became psychological cruelty, methods and techniques to break the prisoners' resistance and will. It was prison policy not to inform newcomers of their exact whereabouts. They were systematically subjected to the feeling of being helpless at the mercy of a mighty authority. Being completely cut off from the outside world and their fellow prisoners, they were subjected to months of questioning by expert interrogators aimed at coercing them into making incriminating statements. If you have seen the film The Lives of Others, you will be able to picture exactly that. If you haven't seen it, I think it is very much worth watching and it is available with English subtitles. I recommend. So, The Lives of Others. All about the lengths the Stasi went to to pry into the lives of other people. Alternatively, Anna Funder's book Stasiland has a lot on this too. She writes about going on a tour of Hohenschönhausen in the company of somebody who had been imprisoned there, Frau Paul. This, for example. We walked up the steps. The huge studded metal door slid sideways to reveal a long linoleum corridor. Frau Paul pointed out a primitive cable and hook system that ran along the walls at head height. When a new prisoner was coming, it operated as an alarm system, turning on red lights at intervals. That was the signal for all other prisoners to be locked in their cells and guards to be out of sight. The prisoner was not to know who else was here or have any human contact which was not strictly monitored for psychological purposes by her captors. Frau Paul shows Anna Funder the room in which she herself was interrogated and explains that there were 120 such rooms in the whole complex. She shows her too the small empty concrete cells where prisoners would be kept in the dark. She shows her the torture chambers, little compartments so small that one person could just about stand up in them, designed to be filled with icy water up to the neck. There were 68 of these, and she describes too some of the interrogation techniques which can only really be labelled as torture. And when finally it was closed in 1990, it was decided that it should be kept as a memorial site. Anna Funder explains that, at least at the time when she wrote her book, None of the Stasi police or torturers had been brought to justice, but at least having the prison open as a memorial site means that it won't be completely forgotten. And here, from the leaflet you're given when you visit Hohenschönhausen, is the explanation of what they see their role to be. To explore the history of the Hohenschönhausen prison between 1945 and 1989, to inform through exhibitions, events and publications, and to inspire visitors to take a critical look at the methods and consequences of political persecution and suppression in the communist dictatorship. So those then are three places in Berlin today that you can go to visit if you are in search of East Germany and what life was like in East Berlin. The DDR Museum, the Stasi Museum and the Hohenschönhausen Prison. I'd like to end the episode with a couple more looks of just how all of this affected ordinary people in their ordinary lives. And both of the quotations I'm going to finish with come from Maxim Leo's book, Red Love, in which he looks back at the lives of his parents and grandparents and how they were all affected by the turbulence of life in Germany in the 20th century. The grandparents by World War II and his parents who were East German citizens. His mother, in fact, had been born in Dusseldorf and been moved suddenly along with her parents to East Berlin when she was a little girl. And about that, Maxim Leo writes, In the neighbourhood, 
is a pioneer troupe where they do crafts and sing. Her parents tell her that they now live in a country where everyone is free and equal, where the good people are in charge and where her pappy doesn't have to be frightened anymore. Two years later, they moved to Friedrichshagen and all of a sudden they're called Leo again. Her parents say she mustn't tell anyone that they were once called Oswald so that the bad people can't find them. Anne has a favourite children's book, Oswald the Monkey, which she no longer dares to read. And then there's a description a few pages later of when Anne had grown up, she's 19 I think at this stage, and she's got her first job as a journalist. And where again she soon finds that the contrast between how things seem to her and how they seem when you look at what's going on around you has a mismatch about it. Quote, At first Anne works in the political section. Most of the articles printed here are party press releases supplied by the ADN news agency and they just have to be pasted in. None of the press releases can be shortened or altered in any way. Even spelling mistakes are left as they are because no one dares to phone the central committee about something like that. Anne notices that most of the bosses aren't really journalists at all, but party officials doing their duty on the paper. The good journalists aren't in the party, which she finds strange, because the party is, after all, supposed to be the elite. And Maxime Leo describes, too, a bit more about how this is all policed. So Anne soon discovers that there will be meetings, at which the editor-in-chief will explain what you can write and what you can't. She notices that these meetings take place usually after the editor has just been to the central committee, and so presumably he has been told what is and isn't acceptable. Here's an example. It isn't just a matter of how to place and understand certain events in party terms. They are also told what words are henceforth undesirable because the enemy has appropriated them, what products can't be mentioned because they're defective. There are months in which no one is allowed to write washing machine or car tyre. Social democracy is expunged for two years, Parliament and the Angolan People's Front only for six weeks. So the regime just found its way into everything. People's lives, people's actions, people's thoughts. But I can't end without mentioning the concept of Ostalgie, which is a German compound word. The Germans love those. This one combines the word for East, Ost, with the word for nostalgia, nostalgie. So Ostalgie then is nostalgia for East Germany. And while, as I said at the beginning, almost everyone, I think, would agree that the disappearance of East Germany was a good thing, that didn't mean they didn't look back in some ways fondly on that country which no longer exists. I'm assuming they weren't missing the shortages or the surveillance or the lack of freedom, but they did miss what they would describe to me when I went to visit was a simpler, less consumerist society, one where friendships were very important, where there was a sense of community. I suppose in many ways people sticking together because there was an overarching enemy above them, or because they wanted to rebel in whatever small ways they could find and had to find other like-minded people to support them. So yes, the past is gone and in many ways that's a good thing, but you can still be nostalgic for aspects of it. All of this was summed up for me in a remark by a critic from, I think, the Sunday Telegraph, written on the back of Maxime Leo's book. This person commented that they'd found reading Red Love to be beautiful and supremely touching. It was, they wrote, an unbearably poignant description of a world 
which no longer exists. So that brings me then to the end of today's episode, the end of my little series on historical moments from the 20th century and how they affected Berlin. Always with an eye to all the places in the city today that you can visit to find out more. And from next episode then, on to a new tack, going to move in the direction of art and do the first of, I think, two episodes on art in Berlin. I'm going to focus to start with on the three massive art galleries in the city, all of which are great, all of which are slightly different. They all have their own flavour. So I'm going to try and convey that and talk a little bit about some of the paintings you can see in each of them. So I hope you'll look forward to joining me for that. And meanwhile, just thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. And until next time then, goodbye. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>